If you have uh, with you our bulletin, uh, if you would pick it up and uh, tear this off of the bottom of it, there's a little perforated tab. And if you're at home, if you would look up in your Bible, Hebrews 11, 1 through 2, and write it down. And uh, we're going to, as a church, be working on memorizing this, uh, this particular verse. So I want to encourage you to do that. It is very short. There are no excuses. Um, I know that there are people younger than me that say they can't uh, memorize scripture. Um, you surely can. It's, uh, it's easy. And when you do it, you actually receive something that nobody can take away from you. It belongs to you. And when, uh, when hard times come, it comes to your mind. So in this case, it's Hebrews uh, 11, 1 through 2. Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for. And the assurance about what we do not see, this is what the ancients were commended for. And this begins the whole chapter, the, what is called the Hall of Faith, which we'll be in in, in coming weeks. Um, and it's also our starter for our prayer. Would you please bow your heads with me? Um, Father, we understand that the universe was formed at your command, so that what is seen was not made out for what was visible. You are our creator God. We live by faith, trusting that you, you reward those who earnestly seek you. And by faith, we look forward to the city with foundation, whose architect and builder is God. We are foreigners and strangers on earth, looking for a country of our own, a better country, a heavenly one. So God, you know we live in a place where the good does not always prevail, where there is injustice and sorrow, where there are tears. We live in a place that desperately needs you to speak redemptively into it, and you have definitively done so through your Son, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we pray that the Spirit of Jesus would blow through our land, turning hearts and minds to you, bringing spiritual revival to people, and glory to you. We pray that the Spirit of Jesus would speak redemptively into our own lives and that we would respond to your Holy Spirit with joy. God, we need you. We pray that you would work in our country, in our community, throughout the world. We need Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin our time this morning by uh, speaking with a uh, current issue that you may have heard of, and everybody's going, oh, okay, great, Wh which one now? Um, but enough people have brought this particular one to mind that, uh, that I think it's important that we address it, whether you've heard it or not. Uh, Ravi Zacharias passed away in uh, May of 2020. He was a well-known speaker, author, Christian apologist. But if you Google his name, what comes up first is, uh, is not so much any of those things. Uh, what will come up first are uh, d details of a, a sex scandal that he was involved in, and not just a, a minor one, but one that occurred over the course of years. In my slides from his own Christianity Today, of shattered hearts, used of sexual abuse. News, Instagram, World Magazine, Gospel Coalition, Christian sources, secular sources all agree. The reports have come out that, that there is a problem that occurred in this man's life. And one of Za uh, Rabbi Zacharias's quotes that he had uh, made, and it, it's memorable, is this, 
Sin always takes you farther than you want to go, keeps you longer than you want to stay, and costs you more than you want to pay. Those words uh, have new meaning when we realize some of the, the um, troubles of Rabbi Zacharias's life. Uh, years ago, another fallen Christian leader ironically wrote a book called Deep Influence, which was published just before his own misdeeds became public. Well, Ravi's deep influence has transformed his life's work into a deep well of sorrow and pain and hypocrisy. Sin always takes you further than you want to go, costs you more than you want to pay, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. So what are we as Christians to make of all of this? Now, um, Sarah in our congregation reminded me that a couple of years ago I, I wrote a letter in response to another uh, couple uh, leaders' failings. Uh, in 2019, Chicagoland was rocked by the fall of two well-known Christian leaders. And uh, here's the response that I wrote to it at that time. I think it's just as relevant today. The giants have fallen and Christians tremble. But should they? In the wake of serious leadership accusations directed towards senior pastors of two of the largest churches in the Chicagoland area, how are we to think of these fractures within Christ's local church? Bill Hybels is well known for his quote, um, the local church is the hope of the world. But given our current circumstances, what is the hope of the local church? And we know the answer. Christ. Some compare the local church to a hospital where the wounded come in for healing. The analogy is not a bad one overall. People find healing in the church. Many wonderful acts of kindness and mercy have been done in the, in the name of Christ. But the local church is not the hope of the world. Christ is. Uh, the church belongs to Jesus. Church leaders are accountable and will one day answer to Jesus, as will Rabbi Zacharias. Any leader that subtly buys into the lie that the church in some way belongs to him or is standing, is standing on dangerous ground. The church, every local church, and the church with a capital C belongs to Christ. She was bought and paid for by him. Every church leader must not only exhibit the qualifications listed in the letters of Timothy and Titus, but also the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Dear Christian, tremble not, you bear the name of Christ for a reason. No pastor, pope, or any other leader provides the foundation for your faith. Trust in Christ alone. Now, brothers and sisters, I think it's okay for us to be for him. Men and women of, of the counts are very because, and what do you do with a guy written books and you find out that they've, they've fallen? And as, uh, as another pastor I know uh, has said often, chew up the meat and spit out the bones. Take a look at this stuff, see what's right, test it by the word of God, and whatever's wrong, cast it away. Because it's Christ and the word of God that prevails. Well, today we are... Uh, fortuitously, providentially, um, entering into the world of Melchizedek. Um, 
at the end of our passage uh, last week and the first passage read this week, it says uh, there's a hope that's an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? Is anybody familiar with Melchizedek here? How many of you are you know, Melchizedek people? You know, you know about them? Have you heard this? It's only like three or four verses of the, old, well, the book of Genesis, one more verse in Psalm 110. And so for those of us who've been going through this series, his name's not new. Uh, he's spoken of in Hebrews 5.6, 5.10, But up until now, I've not said much about him, nor have you asked me anything about him. We've sort of maintained a Melchizedekian silence. But today, I'm about to break the silence, and I hope you will too. So we have a whole chapter, Hebrews 7, devoted to this character, Melchizedek. And um, the title of our message today is Meet Melchizedek, A Strange Bible Passage Explained. So we have an introduction and two questions. Uh, what's so great about Melchizedek, and why is the name Melchizedek uh, hope? Why is it hopeful for Christians? So let's start out by meeting uh, Melchizedek. Can you just say that name with me so I know you're awake? Melchizedek? Melchizedek. All right, one more time. One, two, three. All right, awesome. We're gonna, if anybody asks you to read one of these passages, you go, wow, you know how to pronounce that guy's name. That's cool. Uh, in Scripture, the name Melchizedek shows up in uh, Genesis 14, 18 through 20. So that's the first time it, it shows up. Uh, the only other place his name shows up is in Psalm 110.4. Uh, Sir Peter Paul Rubens uh, painted what he imagined the scene between Abraham and Melchizedek might look like. This is the painting that you see up on the screen right now. So let's go back and we'll read this Genesis passage about Melchizedek. And I'm going to actually back us up one verse and into uh, Genesis uh, 17, 14, 17, so that we can understand the context uh, behind Melchizedek. So we'll go 14, 17 through 20. Listen carefully or follow along in Scripture. Uh, after Abraham, after Abram returned from defeating Ketelmar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Most High. And Abram, give you a little background. You can go visit. It was five kings against four kings. And the five kings, among the five kings, was the king of Sodom. You might have heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were, they were among the, the five kings. And they lost the battle to these kings allied with Ketelamar. So Ketelamar won. Sodom and Gomorrah lost. And we might, might think, wee, that's great, fantastic. Except that Abram's nephew Lot was living in Sodom at the time. And after the kings allied with Calamar won, they went and sacked all the cities. And they didn't just take the goods, they took the people, including Lot and his family, along with him. So you can imagine these victorious kings, they're heading back, to, back home with all the loot, all the people, everything. Abraham finds out about this. He gets his 
few allies together. He's got 318 men, and he goes after this larger force and is victorious. It's amazing. It's an amazing, fortuitous battle. And at the end of this battle, the king of Sodom says, you know, keep everything, just give me the people, send the people back home. Now, by the rules of war, Abraham could just keep everything, including the people. But Abraham said, no, I don't want a single coin from you. I don't want anything from you. I don't want anyone saying this king of Sodom made me rich. And so he said, just let, let the men have their share. Let, you know, allies, whatever, give, give every, other people their thing. But I don't want anything from you. On the other hand, this guy appears out of nowhere. And it, it's uh, Melchizedek. We haven't heard about him before this. We don't hear about him after this in the book of Genesis. But he shows up and Abraham gives him 10% of the plunder. And comes before him as, as someone um, would before a priest, before a superior, before somebody who, who um, they are, um, who is an intermediary for worship, you might say. Whatever you want to read into this passage, it's, it's really odd because it shows up and then it disappears, never appears again until we see it in Psalm 110 and then a lot in the book of Hebrews. So, this is, um, two thousand years before the time of Christ, and what we have is as a king appearing out of nowhere. We have a king offering bread and wine, a king blessing, and says this king is also a priest. So centuries later, King David wrote Psalm uh, 110. Uh, Psalm 110.4 said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so now at last we fast forward into the New Testament, into the book of Hebrews, which is the, the book we're studying, but we're just kind of getting some background information here. So Hebrews um, 7, just the first three verses, describes this guy. You get to know him. Melchizedek was the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. Abraham, first the name Melchizedek translated is king of Salem and peace. Talk about the importance of a name in it somehow, righteousness and peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days, end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. There's no recording of his lineage, no mom, no dad, no genealogy, in a, in a day when genealogy was very important. None of that was there. No beginning, no end. And somehow there's an eternality about this that's expressed here. So let's go through it. What do we know about Melchizedek so far? We're kind of reviewing our information on this character. Uh, first of all, we know that he is the king of Salem. And some believe that the king of Salem is the king of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We know that he is the priest of the God Most High, El Ayon. He is the priest, the generic word for God, but the highest God. Speaking into the, the world of the Canaanites at that time, he is above all other gods. And this is the one that Melchizedek 
identified as helping Abraham with his victory. So this, this guy Melchizedek is a king and a priest, and he blessed Abraham. And he's the same one that in Genesis 14, 18, gave, um, Abraham gave a tithe to. And then uh, he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. We mentioned that. And those are divine titles. And then number six, Melchizedek just appears on the scene. Just pops in, pops out. No beginning, no end. And then finally, Melchizedek is compared to the Son of God. How often does that happen? And he has a perpetual priesthood, an unending priesthood. Something is going on like that that's not ending. So now that you've met Melchizedek, do you feel like you know him? Could you invite him to your dinner party? Uh, how, how, uh, how close are you guys getting here? Um, he is at once a curious anomaly, and he's also the pinnacle of triumph in a story left unexplained. Uh, and this is just the introduction. We're going to share a little bit more as we get into the passage here. Uh, well, let's learn about what's so great about Melchizedek. So why is this guy so important? What's the big deal? Well, reflecting on the story of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews enthusiastically tells us in, seven, in uh, chapter 7, verse 4, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, wrapped up in the rest of these verses in our passage is this idea of giving a tenth of the plunder, this idea of giving a tithe. Abraham gave this, this loot to Melchizedek. And the, and the importance isn't the loot itself, it's the act of what Abraham did. So the greatness of Melchizedek is wrapped up in the concept of Abraham giving the tithe the plunder. And who receives tithes? Well, in the world that Hebrews was written into, um, in the world of Israel, the Levites received tithes and nobody else. They were priests descended from the tribe of Levi. Uh, the Old Testament law required they were given 10% from their fellow from Levi. He doesn't act the genealogy out of nowhere and received a tithe. Levi hadn't even appeared on the scene yet. Scandalous on two levels. Abraham and Levi was the one from whom all the priests were descended. In fact, those who had not been descended from the tribe of Levi and tried to make sacrifices, uh, doing priestly duties, ended up getting in trouble. Chief example is uh, Israel's first king, King Saul, was in trouble because he offered the sacrifice himself and didn't wait for the priest. So the character of Melchizedek seems to cut in um, to priests and promises. Priests and promises seem to be the issue here. And to understand the depth of the issue of Melchizedek cutting into Abraham's promises, we have to understand how important Abraham is. Abraham's name appears 317 times in Scripture. It appears often in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament. There's a connection between the two. Abraham received an oath of blessing and multiplication. He'd be greatly blessed by God. His descendants would multiply. The promises of God uh, would go through Abraham to all the nations. But Melchizedek was somehow greater than Abraham. Uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus was speaking of the uh, resurrection to the Sadducees, now you know the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrections and the Sadducees didn't. That's why they're so Sadducee. 
Okay. I didn't say that just to have a, a dumb joke, but just to hopefully to get that in your head. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, and so the, uh, uh, Jesus is explaining the resurrection, and uh, they were saying, well, what happened to this guy that had all these wives that he married? Which one belongs to him in, you know, in the resurrection? Trying to say there can't be a resurrection. And Jesus said, that's not the way it works. You are misled. But at the end of the discussion, Jesus said, this God... Is the, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living, indicating that Abraham was alive because the whole argument was about the resurrection. That Abraham had experienced the resurrection is what Jesus believed. And Abraham's name shows up again and again and again, synonymous with salvation. One of the huge promises to Abraham is this promise of salvation, that this life is going to last longer than it is here on earth. That the promised land is not just in Israel, but it's greater than we ever imagined, that it's a promised land in heaven. And the Israelites believed that the promises, these promises to Abraham were restricted only to Israelites. And yet... That isn't what Jesus indicated, and it's not what's indicated in Galatians and Romans, where we learn that the seed of Abraham are those who live by faith. And in fact, you and I are children of Abraham, in a sense. We are the seed of Abraham if we, do, if we live by faith. So how can Melchizedek be greater than Abraham? If Abraham is so important, so locked up into salvation and all these concepts and everything, how do we, how do we get that milk important than Abraham into the giving? Abraham receives the promise. Now, the Levitical priesthood offers sacrifices, and um, they'd sac- offer sacrifices in the temple. The covenant promises were tied into this group of people. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, genealogy, it was all so important for the priesthood. And yet, boom, God does something different. In the center of all of this, before Levi even arrived on the scene, there is this priesthood, which has to do with righteousness and peace. The priest is a king. He's a priest. The priest is offering blessing to the one who receives the promises. And there's this this picture of this guy that's being painted that is fantastically great. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than the Levitical priests. So why is the name Melchizedek important to Christians? Why do we think it's important? Well, I I think you've gotten a little glimpse of that from what we've spoken of so far. You can see that Melchizedek really is a a type, whether, whether Melchizedek was anything more than a Canaanite priest or whether he was uh, the angel of the Lord. We, we We don't get more information about Melchizedek. But what we do know is the life of Melchizedek in history pointed to Christ. If one of the, the great reassurances, one of the great applications out of this is some people say, you know, there's the Old Testament, the New Testament. I like to read the New Testament, that Old Testament thing. I don't quite get that, and I don't really want to deal with that thing over here. Let's just hang out in the New Testament. And what this says is, no, way back when, in history, written in Scripture, there's a Christ-like figure 
that brought bread and wine, righteousness and peace, that gave blessing to the heir of the promises, the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. All that happened thousands of years before Jesus. And God was pulling this redemptive thread all the way through Scripture. So your Old Testament is the foundation the new stands on. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand. It's culturally removed from us. It's, it's hard to read. But Hebrews helps us to understand some of these things as we pull that thread all the way through. There is one author, and he wrote about Jesus in history a couple thousand years before Jesus arrived on the scene in the life of Melchizedek. That's why it's there. So that's one, one reason why it's hopeful for us to, as Christians, um, to hear the name Melchizedek. But I think there's a, a greater and more important reason uh, also. And, and that's, um, as, as we're, um, as we're finished, actually, let's, let's back up a little bit. How about uh, Matthew 22 uh, with the greatest commandment? Um, we're an expert of the law. So this is Matthew 22:35 through 46, came to test Jesus. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hangs on these two commandments. You might be familiar with that passage. Two greatest commandments, Jesus said, hands down, love God, love people. Get that right, everything else is good. When the this part, the Messiah then that David, speaking by the Spirit, called him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I put your enemy's son. No one could say a word in that reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Jesus was quoting from Psalm 2 and from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the one that connects with Melchizedek. The idea being that we need this hope, this, this righteousness. And as we, um, as we think about this hope the, of the order of Melchizedek, and if we think about um, what happened before our passage in Hebrews 6, uh, there's, a, there's a part that I didn't actually talk about last week, and it was um, this hope that is an anchor for our soul. It's the hope of inheritance, the hope of the promise that helps us to enter into the sanctuary, the holy place beyond the veil. In the temple, there was a great curtain, and the curtain separated uh, the holy of holies where only God could be and the, the place where the priest could be, and outside that was where the people could be. And what Hebrews is saying is this hope that's an anchor for our soul actually lets us walk into that curtain to be with God. We can't love God and love people. Have you done that perfectly? I know I haven't. I haven't loved God or people perfectly. And therefore, I should be afraid of righteousness, complete righteousness, to stand in his presence because I'm not completely righteous. I wouldn't, wouldn't stand, nor would you, nor would any of us, before a holy God. We need God's grace. We desperately need the grace that is offered through Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who helps us to walk into that sanctuary. The idea is that the order of Melchizedek is the one 
you have to break through of all these human institutions that walks us into the inner sanctuary. And so if we, if we go way back to Rabbi Zacharias and to fallen brothers and sisters in Christ, some of them very well known, um, none of them can help us. In fact, we can be hindered. Uh, Paul said, you know, why are you talking about Paul or Apollos? Did, did we die for you? Were we crucified for you? Jesus was crucified for you. Don't be holding up Paul and Apollos. We can't hold up priests and pastors and well-known Christian speakers and anyone else. We have to have our own relationship with Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've had some holy moments where I just really feel like I'm connecting with God in a, in a place where just, it's just me and the Lord, and it's, just, it's a really special time. And, and those are good and sweet, but then you broaden it out and you deal with people, those darn people. And, uh, and our brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes they sin against us, sometimes we sin against them, sometimes we read about them in the paper, and we're just like, oh, can we, if it was just me and God. Well, you know, no, it's me and God, and it's me and everyone else. And so one of the things we need to understand from all of this is that our hope is in Christ, but we live here in the world with our brothers and sisters. Christ, Karayas, if he was and say, hey, dude, and if you repent of everything he'd done wrong, he can no longer do that because he's dead, but if he did, who would be the greater, more mature Christian in that case? The one who's well-known, his name is in the paper, he's written books and everything, or the one who's lesser known that helped return a brother to Christ. And that's us. We don't need to have our names known well. We don't need to be important. What we need to do is cling closely to Jesus and help our brothers and sisters do that well. Well, I'll close with, with this in terms of hope. Uh, we're thinking about uh, the, the uh, anchor to our soul. So, Last week I asked this, and I asked this again, how hopeful are you, and where have you placed your hope? Imagine if we're honest, we are not all in the same spot regarding hope, but your answer to that question informs your present, affects your future, and explains your past. Our hope drives us, sustains us, and helps us to live securely in the present. And sometimes we place our hope in the wrong things. Sometimes we hope in those things that can't sustain us, or we hope in something that will eventually fail. I asked last week, is the object of your greatest hope strong enough to sustain the weight of your immortal soul? And here's a twist. Is the object of your faith, the source of your hope, strong enough to bring you into the presence of God? If you were to die tonight, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What is your hope? Please pray with me. Father God, you know we are a people in need of redemption. We're so deeply in need of your grace. How can we be so ungracious towards others? We are beggars before the cross. We have nothing to bring. And yet you have offered us a rich inheritance in Jesus. You've offered us the opportunity to walk into that inner sanctuary with you. God, help us to 
put our hope firmly in you and nothing else. Help us to also be gracious with others, Lord. As we love you, help us to love people well, even when they've sinned against us, even when they've said things that annoy us or make us mad or they've done things to us. Help us to be gracious and forgiving. Help us to be like Jesus, Lord. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is our King. In his name we pray. Amen.